The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. If the avalanche of lawsuits over voting by mail seems overwhelming now, just wait for the lawyers to get to work on Election Day. President Trump has been repeating unproven claims about mail-in ballots for months. Now Democrats are trying to rig the election. Left-wing judges and governors are changing the rules just weeks before the election. These ballots are a disaster. They are a total, complete disaster. So barring a landslide, many legal experts expect a second wave of lawsuits after the election. Joining me is Rebecca Green, a professor at William & Mary Law School and co-director of the Election Law Program. There are an unprecedented number of election cases before the election. Will most of those be resolved by Election Day or will they still be litigated? So it's a great question. And first point to make about the volume of election litigation that we've seen so far is, number one, it's unprecedented. Um, we've definitely never seen as high of a volume of litigation, you know, between the primary and general election. Um, but that's not terribly surprising, given that we're in a sort of once in a hundred year pandemic. Um, and most of that litigation has involved um, accommodating voters and election officials because of the pandemic. So um, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that it's unprecedented. The second thing to say is that it's not a bug of our system. It's actually a feature. And it's really, in, in some sense, a, a good thing that so much litigation has occurred in the sense that it's, it's evidence that our system is working and that when problems are confronted, we have dispute resolution processes to address them. So in other words, um, it's, not a, it's not a problem. It's actually just the function, the, the system working as it should. And I guess the third thing to say is that um, we should feel very lucky uh, that um, we are not being hit with the pandemic to the degree that we were um, just prior to the primaries in our general election, um, where many, many more people vote and obviously, um, you know, more is at stake. So uh, that is to say that all of the litigation that we've seen so far has ironed out a lot of the kinks and resolved a lot of the problems of running elections during the pandemic. Uh, and so we should be sort of in that sense grateful that um, that we've gotten so many of these issues. We've gotten clarity um, on many of these issues prior to the election. So I think um, in sort of more directly answering your question, um, I think most of this litigation will be resolved in advance of the election. And certainly courts have a mandate to do so, you know, to, to make sure that rules are in place as far in advance of elections as they can. Um, and so I think um, I think most of the litigation that we are seeing raging around the country and what we've seen over the last few months will in fact be resolved. Um, But that's not to say, of course, that there won't be um, continuing litigation um, as we approach election day, that there won't be election day litigation. And certainly, of course, there will most certainly be post-election litigation as well. That was my next question. The fact that we have all this litigation now, and as you mentioned, the pandemic, do you expect to have an unprecedented amount of post-election lawsuits? Well, it's hard to say about 
unprecedented. I do think that pressures on the system. So where you typically see a lot of uh, post-election litigation involves um, two categories of ballots. First, provisional ballots. Those are ballots that um, people cast when they are told that for one reason or another, they're not on the rolls or they are you know, in the wrong precinct or, or there's a disagreement about whether the person is eligible to vote. Federal law requires that those people be handed a provisional ballot. And um, then they have, you know, a certain amount of time to sort of prove that they were, in fact, eligible. Um, and the, the state um, has to kind of go through a post-election process, an administrative process to decide whether to count or not count those provisional ballots. And so there's an administrative process for that, just like there's an, administ- an administrative process for absentee ballots. So when you re- the state receives the absentee ballot, there's a process that they go through to verify that it's um from the, the person who sent it in and that, the, that all the sort of boxes are checked. Um, in other words, do they have their address on there? Did they sign it properly? If they needed a witness signature, is that on there? Those kinds of things. So there's these administrative processes. And often when elections are close, um, election litigators look to provisional and absentee ballots to determine you know, whether or not they can find um, ones that should have been counted that weren't, or ones that were counted that shouldn't have been counted. And so um, that tends to drive a lot of post-election litigation when elections are closed. So because of the nature of running an election during a pandemic and all of the um, issues that have arisen, especially with the dramatic increase that's expected in absentee balloting, um, I think it's fair to say that, that it's likely that there will be more uh, post-election litigation. But I guess the caveat there is that typically there isn't election litigation when there is what's referred to as no margin of litigation, that is to say, if it's not close, <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's less likely that litigation will occur um, if it's a blowout, for example. So I think a lot of people are looking at, at that question, sort of, you know, the, the closer it is, the more litigation you can expect. Can we expect litigation in any event from President Trump in light of the things that he's been saying about mail-in balloting? causing massive fraud and that if he doesn't win, he doesn't know if he can trust the outcome. So can we expect? Well, I think um, it's important to um, remember that courts, and we've seen this already in litigation, um, you know, in this sort of pre-election litigation already, um, which is that courts are very consistent in requiring provable facts and evidence to show that there's been a statutory or constitutional violation of state or federal law before they're willing to entertain a case. And so, um, you know, if, if, if President Trump um, and his attorneys are able to point to evidence of fraud or problems in the absentee voting context, for example, um, then, you know, that, that is absolutely something that should be litigated and that evidence should be examined. And, you know, that, that, that is what, how our system works. Um, but if, if the facts aren't there, if the evidence isn't there, you know, a court will not entertain that um, allegation, um, you know, again, if evidence doesn't exist. So I think that's going to be the real question is whether or not, you know, he's, he's certainly been suggesting that there are lots of problems with absentee voting and, and that there will be fraud. But um, unless he can marshal the evidence to show that that's actually happened, um, I don't think he'll get far in court. And any attack President Trump makes on the election, that would have to be a state-by-state case or attack? Correct. So, so yeah, it's kind of um, hard to get your head around, but, you know, America doesn't have a single presidential election. That we have e- elections in every state. 
Um, and so, so yes, you wouldn't be able to sort of challenge a presidential election nationally. You'd have to bring that litigation in states. And those states would be following, in some cases, federal law in the sense that they have to comply with federal requirements. But the vast majority of requirements in elections in this country comes from state law. So, and those state laws are, you know, they're their own ecosystems and um, very distinct from one another. So usually what happens is, um, you know, election experts in the state, so, so litigators who are expert on the state's election law will pick up cases at, at the state level because, because the law is so arcane in this field. Bush v. Gore is the case that's mentioned over and over again because anyone who went through it, you remember just hanging on every chad, so to speak. So is there any likelihood that there'll be another Bush v. Gore? So, you know, the reason why Bush versus Gore was such an extraordinary case is that the, t- the tally came down to 537 votes, which is extraordinary that, you know, the deciding state from an ele- electoral vote count matter came down to a state where the vote was that close. So that is a pretty extraordinary circumstance. And it's always the case that there are close elections. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Virginia, where we had an election that was so close that the victor had to um, be drawn from a hat. So it's not rare to have close elections, but um, to have a, the series of circumstances that align to produce Bush versus Gore occur again would be quite extraordinary. So, I, you know, never say never, but it, it, it's only going to be that the, the kind of Bush v. Gore level scenario if, in fact, um, we're talking about a state where it's as close and, and where the, that state is, um, you know, pivotal to the outcome. The possible scenario for there being no election lawsuits after the election would be an overwhelming vote for one candidate or the other? Yeah. So, I mean, usually the way this works is, you know, candidates won't bring claims, uh, you know, and expend resources. And indeed, in some cases, in most cases, state law won't allow um, a recount if the outcome isn't, you know, close. You know, so for example, some states have laws that say there, there can be no recount unless there is the vote is close by X percent, one, one percent, for example. And so it is the case that um, if the, a candidate believes or a political party believes that the number of votes that are contested. So, for example, um, you know, let's say that a vote was, um, you know, 100,000 votes, you know, the, the candidate won by 100,000 votes. If the candidate who lost by 100,000 votes believes that there are, for example, you know, 200,000 fraudulent votes, then that candidate could contest the results saying, you know, that that the outcome would have changed had it not been for these fraudulent votes. But they're not going to get anywhere in litigation unless they can produce evidence that supports, you know, a finding that there has been, in fact, um, that much fraud. So in other words, unless you have the evidence to prove that you have an outcome determinative number of problems um, in terms of the ballots that have been counted, then you're going to not get far in litigation, if that makes sense. And I think it's fair to say also that um, in a blowout situation, without that kind of evidence, I don't think anyone would, I don't think any court would entertain a lawsuit that where there just wasn't the proof needed to, to show that the outcome was incorrect. Still, do the president's statements make it hard to predict whether there'll be litigation because he's used the courts as refuge time and time again to drag things out. So even if you don't have a verifiable claim, a claim with proof, you could still slow down the process, can't you? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, the the adjudicatory process for determining whether, um, you know, weighing evidence and determining whether, you know, provable facts exist, that can take time and that does require courts and fact finders, you know, and administrative processes for that matter to kind of go through carefully to make sure that things are right. And so I think very likely that there will be, you know, this has been, you know, a headline for for weeks now, you know, that we, we, we shouldn't necessarily expect a decision um, or an outcome on election night, you know, administrative and potentially judicial processes may take time. But again, if there is evidence that there's been a problem, courts will take that seriously and take their time in, you know, addressing that issue like happened in Florida, for example, um, where it wasn't a question about fraud. It was this question, obviously, right, with the butterfly ballot and ballot design. But the idea was that it took a long time to kind of sort through the counting process or the recounting process in that case. So it's very possible that there could be administrative or judicial delays sort of as a result of whatever happens. Um, But in a presidential election, of course, there are hard and fast deadlines that are set by federal law. And so um, courts typically are cognizant of those deadlines and try to ensure that their processes fall within those deadlines. In, in other words, the courts require provable facts. Um, they, they require evidence. And unless that evidence exists, there's not going to be, there's going to be no there there. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rebecca. That's Professor Rebecca Green of William & Mary Law School, co-director of the Election Law Program. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court agreed to hear two appeals from President Trump's administration over immigration-related policies. The new cases come on top of one the justices accepted on Friday to determine whether Trump can exclude undocumented immigrants from the 2020 census counts. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. So the court has taken now three big immigration-related cases. What's your take? Well, what's interesting about the three cases is the timing of the cases, which is that none of these cases potentially could survive a Biden administration if Biden is elected. And so what will be fascinating is either these cases will sort of solidify a sea change in immigration law moving forward under a President Trump and a six to three court, or they'll just peter out and these policies won't be implemented and they will be of no moment. And so that's what's fascinating about the timing of these cases is that they really set up either one of those two outcomes. Let's start with the census case. What does President Trump want to do? So President Trump had two goals with regard to the census. The first and his most important goal was he was trying to not count people with unlawful status or quasi-immigration statuses in the census because he believed that by counting those individuals, certain states that were more advantageous to Democrats would get more representation than states that were more advantageous the Republicans. So that was his first goal. And then the second goal was to speed up the count of the census because some of the states lagging behind had been states that were more traditionally represented by Democrats. 
than some of the states who had not been lagging behind. So because of that, he had tried to shorten the time from which he had agreed he would collect census data, which was supposed to be until October 31st, and he wanted to shorten that time until the end of September. And what ended up happening, it ended up going through mid-month of October because of the various litigation that happened. Tell us what the three-judge panel based its decision on. The three-judge panel said that the Trump administration couldn't do this. The three-judge panel decided that it was unlawful for the president to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census because the way that the Constitution is written, it's written as persons. And when the Constitution wants to count citizens or something else, if it's talking about citizens, it refers to citizens. And when it refers to persons, it refers to persons. And so no matter what interpretation you're going to use about what the original enumeration clause meant in the Constitution, it meant counting every human being who was in the United States. And the judges also said that it would violate a separate requirement that the Commerce Secretary send the president a single set of numbers derived from the census? Yes, that's correct as well, which is that at the end of the day, the the Commerce Secretary, the problem is there's sort of this feeling that there's this black box of how this is going to get calculated. And there, the Justice Department was not willing to provide a clear answer as to how they were going to get to the count that excluded undocumented individuals. And so because there is a provision that requires the Census Bureau to provide one count to the president, that also would be violated. You're correct about referencing that. Let's talk about the timing, because the argument is scheduled for November 30th. Obviously, the decision comes after that, and the Commerce Secretary has to send the numbers in by December 31st. So how can they accomplish that unless, are they starting to figure out the undocumented immigrant numbers already? Well, so what's fascinating about this is this was an issue that was in dispute in the other census case, which is that the census administration had already said that they had no chance of being able to meet the December 31st deadline. And that had been said repeatedly and on numerous occasions. And now the Department of Justice had changed its mind and said, no, give us a chance at least to meet the December 31st deadline. So nobody knows if this deadline will be met or not met. And nobody knows how that number is going to be derived of who's undocumented. The only things that have been discussed so far are counting the amount of people that are in ICE facilities and at least deducing that. But if that's literally what we're talking about, we're talking about maybe 20, 30,000 people. And so that's not going to make a difference in anything. And, and that seems to be a lot of waste of resources for no good reason. And so the question is really, what other modes of operation are they going to try to do to discount undocumented people? And really, there's this other question of who is undocumented, because are you undocumented on a specific day? Because a lot of people are in between statuses. Their status has expired, but they're applying for a renewal of their status with USCIS, and that can take months. And a lot of people are waiting to fix their status via marriage application. And so this question is not a simple question at all as to what it actually means to be undocumented. The court is likely going to be different when this is heard because Amy Coney Barrett will most likely be on the court. Can we read anything into the court's October 13th order that let the Trump administration and the census count 
more than two weeks early? Well, I think the the court is inclined to give broad deference to the president here on how the president operates the census. And so I think from that standpoint, even though there was the case that Justice Roberts had been a part of at that time to uh, not allow the citizenship questions to be asked on the census, that's a different question than the operation of when the census was going to be actually completed. And that sort of the statutory scheme there does give very, very broad uh, difference. And in fact, the thing is that the, the case ended up going, the census count ended up going much longer than it was originally supposed to go. It was extended because of COVID. And the other thing that had changed slightly was that the count by mid-October, when this decision had come out, were in the very high 90s in terms of count. It was it was very unclear how much more uh, juice was going to be left in to squeeze out of these additional days because we were talking high 90s in all the parts of the United States. And so I think for those reasons is why the court lifted the, the stay. So I don't know that that gets us anywhere with regards to the ultimate question as to who gets counted as part of the census. I'm wondering if the originalists on the court, if they're going to be looking at the words in the Constitution, whether that may make a good argument against what the Trump administration wants to do. Right. Absolutely. When this executive order first came out, pretty much every legal expert from all walks of life, conservative and liberal, thought that this case would be very flimsy. So it is a bit surprising that we are here at the Supreme Court. But it also happens because when the federal government asks the Supreme Court to review something, there is a lot of deference that's given there. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens most of the time. And so... We are where we are, where this might end up being reviewed. Although, of course, I think if, Pres- if if Vice President Biden wins in November, then maybe that November 30th oral argument uh, takes a lot less importance or gets rescheduled or something else. So we'll we'll see. Often, the court takes cases because they want to overrule. They don't want in place the federal appellate court decision. So in this case, that would mean the court took the case to overrule the three-judge panel, which voted against the Trump administration. Yes, that is the conventional wisdom, that that's what would occur in a normal case like this, which is that the only reason, which is that the, only reason that the case would have been taken would have been to overturn the Second Circuit decision. But here, that might not be the case, because this issue is such a case of national importance that the court might just have taken it because the federal government wanted them to take it and that this might be an issue that would come up in other decades as well, and so they would take it. But at the end of the day, I just I just don't know why the Supreme Court would have taken it if they thought it was a completely frivolous argument. So for anyone to say it's likely that the Trump administration will lose, I think is maybe getting too far ahead of themselves. If Biden does win, the count is in by December 31st. He's not in office until January. So what difference does it make if Biden wins if the count is already in? Well, that's a good question. And I think it will just depend on, A, do they get the count in in time? B, are there legal challenges, which I think would happen to that count? And then C, 
could then, as a result of those legal challenges, a settlement be reached where the Biden administration actually performs accounts that doesn't include uh, this reduction in undocumented individuals, if that makes sense. So that's how I think it would. It, that's how I think it would end up playing out. Is you would have accounts that would that would potentially exclude people then you would have some other lawsuit that was put in just to be a placeholder, and then you'd have a settlement to that lawsuit that ultimately said we aren't going to count the, the – we aren't going to exclude the undocumented from this census, and that's how it would end up playing out. Okay, so today the Supreme Court agreed to hear two other cases related to immigration. One, the clash over Trump's use of $2.5 billion in Pentagon funds to build the wall. And the Supreme Court cleared Trump to start using the money and refused to revisit it. What's your take on this? Well, I mean, this case is a bit in an interesting posture because that money has been basically spent. And the wall has been, you know, to the extent that you would call it constructed, at least in terms of those funds. That horse has already left the barn. And so this is just about two sort of housekeeping issues, which is number one. Well, you still have this Ninth Circuit precedent that says that using those national emergency funds in that manner is illegal. So the idea would be to wipe that off the books so that that wouldn't happen if the president wanted to do it in a subsequent year. And then, of course, there's the issue of allowing the president to do this in subsequent years. And so both of those are the reasons why the court needed to get involved there. Because if that Ninth Circuit precedent had just stayed there, even though there was a stay of this litigation, there might not have been a stay of a subsequent litigation of a subsequent effort that tried to use, again, Defense Department money to build the wall. So what happens if Biden wins and the administration drops the case? Then the Ninth Circuit decision is still on the books. Potentially, yes, that that could be how it ends up working. And if that works, then a future attempt by a future Republican administration to try to do something like this would be thwarted unless the court issued another stay of such a decision next time that something like that would happen. Is it a simple matter to drop the case if Biden wins? Yeah, or- absolutely. absolutely. They can say, look, we are no longer going to continue with this policy of diverting funds, and so this case is now moot and we won't do it. And then the question would be at that point, if the government, because here in in this case, the government is actually the one doing the appeal. If the government does the appeal and the government is the one dropping its own appeal, it's able to do it. If the other side had done the appeal and the government was, was trying to drop the case, they could say, well, this could be likely to come up again, and so we don't want to moot out this case. But here, the Sierra Club and the ACLU and everyone else will be more than happy to moot out this case, given the current composition of the court. And so they won't want to proceed, and the case will go away, because all of the sides in the case will want it to go away. All right, the third case is that the court has agreed to hear Trump's defense of a policy that requires people seeking asylum at the southern border to remain in Mexico while their you know, asylum is being processed. Tell us about this. Well, so this was the linchpin of the entire Trump administration strategy to stop the southern border surge, which was 
instead of operating the two choices that had previously been operated, which was number one, either use detention or family separation or something, or number two, simply parole people to allow them to enter the United States while their case was pending. This was a third option that was in the statutes, but really had never been used, which was to return people to Mexico immediately upon their arrival and have them do their immigration case either in Mexico via video conference or you bring them back in to San Diego or to Brownsville or Laredo to some immigration court there on the day of their actual hearing. And that's called remain in Mexico. And the question is, did that violate the asylum statute? Did it violate the refugee protocol, which the United States is a member of? And did it violate certain implementing regulations? And although the Ninth Circuit has said, yes, it has violated those provisions, the Supreme Court stayed that Ninth Circuit decision and allowed Remain in Mexico to continue. And so this is much like the border case where it's just a matter of cleaning up that Ninth Circuit precedent that says it's illegal. I think the Supreme Court will want to say, no, Remain in Mexico is uh, facially legal. Someone might challenge it in the manner in which it's applied in their particular case and say that they didn't get due process. But I think what they'll say is that there's not, it's not facially valid. There's a way to do remain in Mexico that wouldn't violate any of the provisions of the existing law. Thanks for being in the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.